Hello, I'm Bryony Kidd, and I'm excited to be hosting the first edition of Contemporary Art Tasmania's podcast, What Are You Looking At? As a filmmaker, theatre maker and freelance writer, I spend a lot of time engaging with art and artists, and I'm fascinated by how people working across different sectors develop quote-unquote successful careers. It seems to me things are done a little differently in every creative field, but there's also a lot of crossover in the nature of challenges that are encountered. Our first podcast will delve into what it means to be an artist in Australia today and how this notion relates to the expectations and preconceptions of those higher up the power structure. In particular, we're looking at the gap between tertiary education and becoming established in professional practice as it relates to gender. To do this, I want to extrapolate from ideas that came out of a recent event, Conversations in Art and Feminism Take Two. This was the sequel to a successful symposium event in 2014 and took place at Contemporary Art Tasmania in Tasman Street, North Hobart, on the 6th of March this year. Hi, we might just make a start now. The speakers were a mix of interstate and Tasmanian artists, each discussing an area of specialty. I talked about the film festival I run, for example, which highlights the work of women directors working in genre. There was also a panel discussion at the end with questions from the audience. First up, here's a taste of Jackie Dunn's colloquy. Jackie works across a broad spectrum, from site-responsive art practice to writing on art and museum theory. I'd like to kick us off on a conversation by offering a roundabout and inconclusive questioning of just what it is we're asking for when we seek increased representation and how we might interrogate our desire for inclusion in the future archives of contemporary art. So as we learned through the 1980s and the 90s, um, the we of feminism is not a particularly inclusive term. It, capital F, feminism, is the contested, attenuated thing it became in its second wave, this thing we're struggling with still and into a third wave, precisely because of its myopia regarding race, class, sexuality and other identifications. In an era of intersectional feminism, we know that we all experience oppression in varying configurations and in varying degrees of intensity. However, that doesn't deny the fact of a continuing gender imbalance in the institutional representation of women, more of which we'll no doubt hear about from Elvis (laughs) as we do her project coming up, armed with her contests cites galling statistics on gender imbalance. Indeed, today, uh, just this week, you may be aware that gender equity figures were released by the ABS in Australia and that we've now come up to a record disparity between male and female wage at, wages at uh, nearly 20%, 18.8%. Here's Elvis Richardson. Elvis runs the blog Countess, which uses data to analyse gender representation in the Australian art world. To be considered a contemporary artist by our artistic institutions, I mean, formal training is one of the kind of basic requirements in a way. Artists recognise it as, you know, an essential ingredient to being involved in the contemporary art kind of sector, I suppose. So, you know, the training, that's where the kind of the whole idea of Countess, you know, if there's an equation, it's like, well, you know, in our art institutions, we're educating a lot of women to be artists, but... You know, in the, it's flipping around in the professional opportunities that women artists are obviously getting and, and the results of that training. In fact, 
The VCA used to have on their website, um, oh, the success of our course is measured by the, you know, exhibitions and what have you that our graduates attain. And I pointed that out in one of my posts and I read, and about six months later they didn't have that up on their website anymore <laughs> because, you know, most of their graduates were women. Well, they weren't attaining that kind of, you know, particular benchmark that they were setting for themselves. Jackie Dunn has also given some thought to the gendered nature of what we call the art world. Anyway, about this institution, this thing that we apparently, you know, want to get fairer access to, and we need to be asking, what is it, for starters, very briefly, and I'll not spend time on it today, but what sort of, what sort of dialogue we want to have with it once we've got it, that is, the access to it. The institution is, as we know, simply a structural framework. But whether it is the art market, the museum, the art world itself, or art history, cultural institutions are also, of course, sites of power that Althusser put in the category of ideological state apparatuses. They're there to educate citizens, according to that model, to function within the dominant ideology getting us to uncritically reproduce its values. And this is something we want greater access to. Um, well, seriously, they're apparently all we've got. So that's part of the quandary. Today, as hardly any aspect of the art world can organise outside the logic of the market or its effects, we may have no choice but to make our work the looking for chinks that would allow us to insert a wedge and crack them open. Mary Scott was one of the organisers of the Art and Feminism Symposium and is a senior lecturer at the Tasmanian School of Art. She had this to say when we spoke to her later. The problem is that validation is coming through what are male-dominated mechanisms. I was recently talking to a male curator about this. He told me that he collects work on a merit-based system. But the problem with merit-based systems is that if you're trained within a particular way of thinking about what's meritorious, you're likely to carry that training through all of your decision-making. So, like perpetuates like. And if one half of the population are just saying, well, I recognise that this is the situation, that there is a bias, but I don't participate in that because I just select on merit, well, that's incredibly problematic. It denies a voice to half the population, really. It's a silencing device. So how do these reflections match up with the lived experience of today's artists? We spoke to a few to find out. My name's Rachel Kendrigan. Um, I'm a recent honours graduate from Tasmanian College of the Arts. So I've been studying on and off for about the past 10 years. Um, I started off at TAFE and then worked my way through to the honours level. Um, and that varied from full-time to part-time to having breaks because I was also working in arts administration, so festival management, that kind of thing. Um, and that was all in Mildura. Um, I relocated to Hobart because I wanted to sort of focus just on my practice rather than try and balance the two things at once. So um, I guess I'd say I'm an emerging artist. I've recently branched into performance in the last couple of years. I still sort of feel like I'm at the beginning, even though, like I've been, like I said, I've been studying on and off for 10 years. I still feel like... I'm at the start of what I really want to do in terms of my art. I think it took that time to actually get there. So in terms of thinking forward, um, 
of course I feel like I would like to be successful but I guess that depends on how you define success. I'm Pat Brasington. I live in Hobart and I'm a practicing artist. I was a mature age student uh, and I but that was fine. I mean I felt a little bit nervous about the whole thing but there was no problem there. Uh, so I, I did that and then sort of managed to get some H, I think it's HSC, well mm -hmm. I call it, yes, yeah, subjects under my belt, two of which were art related. Um, so that gave me some confidence to then apply for art school. Did that, was accepted, well, you know, went through the interview process. Um, and at that time, I think there were two streams that you could enter into. One was um, art teacher education, and the other was, you know, like applied, for want of a better word, fine art. Now, I think I thought it best under the circumstances that I apply for the teaching stream. You know, it just sort of made it seem a little bit more proper. <laughs> but <laughs> lucky break, they in their wisdom um, placed me in the fine arts stream. Well, you were sort of constantly reminded that statistics showed that only about 2% of graduates from art schools would ever make it professionally. So I enrolled in an MFA course at the art school in 1983. And now, I mean, the first six months were pretty rough going because I was, you know, still doing night shift work. It was horrendous, actually, and a bit depressing. Um, but then, out of the blue, I was offered a casual admin job at the art school, which was fantastic. Graduated with MFA. Um, now, I mean, this is where, you know, my path may differ from others because I was lucky enough to still be connected to the institution with part, you know, because I had a part-time job. And that also allowed me some access to darkroom facilities. If you're amongst a cohort of like-minded people, you know, it's makes things worthwhile. So I'm James Newitt, uh, I lecture at the Tasmanian College of the Arts and I'm also a visual artist. I made a transition into working as an artist um, sort of during my postgraduate education I think, which was a little bit awkward, um, but during that time um, while being a postgraduate student I started to exhibit um, locally and then, and then nationally and then um, 
after graduation, I think then's the, the big challenge of somehow defining a trajectory that might be a career or not, and it's just sustaining yourself. So I think for me, um, I started to do residencies and kept exhibiting um, in different contexts in Australia and then eventually um, also in Europe. And uh, yeah, and, and then I've maintained a strong connection with the institution as well. So teaching is really important. I mean, I enjoy teaching, but I also... Um, uh, know and have realised that I I couldn't and maybe don't want to support myself as a full-time artist. I think, you know, we have to find ways of supporting ourselves and if you're going to be a full-time artist, um, it's probably either a commercial trajectory or relying on funding, both of which are extremely fickle. And, uh, and I enjoy also teaching. I think it complements uh, my practice well. Selena de Cavallo is an emerging multidisciplinary artist. I came to art school a bit later in life, so I came at about 25. And at that point, I had a two-year-old daughter and I lived in a massive kind of ramshackle, falling down squat share house. And my incentive for coming to art school was, although I'd always self-identified as an artist and as a creative, and that had been, you know, from childhood, I, as um, a young parent, I must have been 24 actually, didn't have any time. And so I needed a structure, I needed an external structure to create that um, time where I would find someone else to look after my daughter and I could go and have that uh, creative expanded thought processes. Because I'm based in Tasmania, I actually feel really well supported and I don't know that that would change if I was somewhere else because you just can't know this is where I live and this is um what I know uh but being here there is quite a small arts community and so people know each other they know your practice and there are conversations that I have with people that are really enabling and kind of push me forward and then there's also like institutions so Arts Tasmania and CAT and um, both of those institutions have been really generous. My name is Rosemary O'Rourke and I've been a practising artist for about, uh, I left art school about 20 years ago. Um, during that time my practice has been um, mostly based around um, the use of textiles and most recently um, moved into drawing. So I went straight from art school into um, professional practice, I suppose, um, exhibiting, um, working almost full time, um, doing a, a little bit of paid work just to keep things going, um, and yeah, exhibiting at a national level um, for quite a while. And um, after I left art school, I spent about eight years doing that, and then I went back to art school um, to do my masters. So I was there. Um, Sometimes so I, I, I lived the life of the artist where I was in the studio um, a lot. Um, I was lucky enough to have two um, overseas residencies in that time and I was fairly dedicated to my practice. Um, then my partner and I decided to have a family. Since that uh, time, the sort of pathway of my practice has, has diverged quite a lot. I was quite happy um, to stop, well, to, not to totally stop, but to really reduce um, the time I was spending 
on my art practice when I had um, my children for the first few years. I was more than happy to um, spend my time as a mum. As time went on, um, I really, really longed for that um, intensity of that of my art practice to return. Um, but I think it's um, once you're a parent, it's just incredibly hard. Um, you you never have that uh, the same time or focus that you had previously. I think that our our relationship to time just radically shifts when you become a parent. So this conversation that we're having right now if I had a baby would be like impossible Mm -hmm. and so it's that um, shift that mental shift and relational shift that goes on that just completely alters what what you do with your day I actually feel that um, I found a new way of working Uh, I started drawing rather than working with um, stitch and cloth Uh, simply because that um, my previous work had been very, very time-consuming and laborious. Um, took hours and hours to make, and now I didn't have hours and hours. I needed to find um, a new way of working. Luckily, I have found that, and I find the drawing um, just so much quicker. One of the, the, the other things that I've found, that I've had to do a lot more paid work as well. So I'm juggling more paid work to survive financially as well as all the responsibilities of having kids um, as well as my practice so my partner is an artist as well and that makes it really difficult or doubly difficult I think to um, because he's juggling the same things that I'm juggling Um, he's very lucky well or unlucky Um, he's fortunate enough to have been able to maintain his full-time practice obviously with added added stress and added juggling Um, but he has been able to do that and that sometimes it's also difficult to cope with the fact that he sometimes gets to do you know gets to maintain his practice and I don't and and we have to work on that so that I don't start to resent that. I think the hindrances are you know um, the knockback letters the things that you reach out and try and make happen that um, for whatever reason, don't fit with um, whoever it is that you're approaching. And then as well, the hindrances of like my life structure as a single parent with two kids and um, carving out time because time is is the greatest asset, I think, that anyone has. And um, creating that time can sometimes mean massive sleep deprivation in the build-up to a project and that can um, be a real hindrance on my nervous system. I've realised that sometimes art is actually bad for me in a health kind of um, sense. I don't know. I, I think that that goes across the board, though. I've, I've observed lots of other artists with that issue, last-minuting. While the circumstances and personalities of the artists we spoke to vary greatly, They seem to share a conviction in their identity as artists that sustains them through difficult times and a sense of the crucial role played by support networks of peers and industry professionals. Also, despite expressing reservations about navigating institutions, many of them cited finding a place within those structures as important to their practice. I think the key thing for me has been my networks 
particularly back in Mildura because I was based there for so long and because I also worked in the arts community. Um, it's those people that I made contact with through my jobs and my study that have really supported me and given me opportunities and helped me out. I think that the connections with people is the most important thing for moving forward with a career because that's where you locate the opportunities and the information and the skills. I see with younger women students in their last year of an undergraduate degree that making that mental shift to thinking about what's going to happen next requires effort. They seem to have less security in their minds about it, whereas a lot of the younger males have made decisions or have some vision about what that would be. I mentor a lot of younger women in terms of how they might think about a structure once they step outside of that closed environment so that they can then find the support networks that will help them progress. But generally, yes, I do think there's a noticeable difference at that stage. My name is Sean Lowry. I'm the convener of Creative and Performing Arts at the University of Newcastle. In my experience, one of the, um, I guess, fundamental issues at play here is the um, assumption that we're dealing with uh, meritocracy. Um, and uh, I think this occurs because uh, uh, there are situations in which um, the first voice, the loudest voice, the most bombastic voice, the most assertive voice, uh, particularly in a, um, a, a committee or a boardroom situation, in a university or um, uh, further up the chain in, a, uh, in arts organisations uh, or um, uh, with the influence of uh, alcohol in a party environment uh, around the uh, market end of the spectrum in the art world, I think there's a tendency uh, to um, foreground the, uh, the first uh, loudest assertive confident voice and to not consider the uh, nuanced um, or uh, reflective or... Um, uh, I guess considered tone that um, uh, may be uh, considered in that context to be uh, extroverted. Perhaps it's most insidious in a commercial context. You know, high-level commercial um, market is kind of obsessed with personality, cult of personality, um, like performance in terms of a performative ego and maybe... um, privileged white men have a way of performing which is more palpable or something I don't know I'm only speculating but in terms of flipping it back to thinking about my experience um, teaching at uni um, I don't know like you said a a few statistics and I'm just kind of um, I never you know statistics I'm not sure and I think it's always you know there's other sets of numbers that you could bring into the equation that might destabilize that and as i'd like just to reinforce it's not to say that i don't believe there is equality inequality but for example um i don't know the numbers um but there's a huge amount like the average age of art school student is something like 30s but what we have if we have a whole bunch of people out of college 17 18 year olds and then we have a whole bunch of people middle age and so the motivations from these different groups of people are really different um and I would speculate that the, the younger people are, are pretty mixed in terms of gender, but the older people, there's a much stronger cohort of middle-aged women. And um, it's not to put a finger on who they are or what their ambitions are, I don't know, but um, I think there are different motivations for them being in art school and maybe different expectations or different ambitions post-art school. It might be recreational, not always, but it could be. But also, I mean, I, you know, this year was the first time in three years teaching and I was kind of stunned to, you know, get to know the students and, and ask everyone about, you know, who they were, who they, you know, where they came from. 
um, what their relationship to practice was, you know, what their relationship to culture was, and then what they wanted to do post art school. And honestly, I think 10% had any interest in being an artist slash filmmaker because I'm teaching in e-media. And in some ways, it's kind of disappointing, but I was just like, so what do you want to do? Why are you here? And it's mixed. Like, the, the motivations are really mixed. But um, I think... I don't know what that is. There's a whole bunch of reasons why that is, you know, and it's got to do with Tasmania and it's got to do with an economic climate. It's got to do with family expectations. It's got to do with a lack of, um, of uh, competition, getting to the school, all this kind of stuff. It doesn't make the work necessarily worse. It's just like, I don't think you can, you can look at numbers and say, you know, these people are coming in and then they're not graduating as artists. Something's wrong because these people come in and are coming from such different backgrounds with such different motivations. It's really boring to keep seeing the same names come up again and again. Like I think curators can be extremely lazy, especially at a certain level. And, um, and when, you know, whether it's predominantly Western, um, you know, Western European or American or predominantly male or whatever, but when the same, same, same names come up at these biennials with these big, broad, vague themes, it just, it's lame. If a certain practice is not being validated, um, maybe the next question is why is it seeking validation from these um, structures or systems that either um, are not interested in it or maybe um, uh, maybe there's a necessity to then to, to move away from those systems or structures and you know invent other contexts in which that validation. Um, can emerge and can happen on a, on a more meaningful level. It could be really difficult to do that and some people might not have access to, access to the kind of resources you need to do that. Um, but maybe it's like the same old, you know, the same old curators looking at the same old artists for the same old validation that, um, that that's not so interesting so other things are possible. I think it's just money talks really loud and it just allows certain things to happen um, which independently are impossible. Um, and so then, of course, they produce spectacle and it's really seductive and it kind of perpetuates itself because no matter how, you know, how much incredible integrity um, something that's independent or has kind of sought its own validation um, might have, it's really difficult to compete with um, spectacle <laughs> when you know, that draws the masses and then that perpetuates the media and then this thing goes around again and we're back to where we started. So what can we do? In terms of the idea of women-only shows, I've changed my mind on that. I do remember in the late 80s, I was asked to participate in a couple. But after about the third or fourth, I just didn't think that I wanted to start being labelled as a feminist artist. I didn't want to wear that label, for whatever reason. It's this idea of being recognised as an artist in your own right, without being put in a box. But I've come round to thinking now that because women do have less confidence around the way they negotiate the system, that those support networks can actually give them the leg up they need. It's a little bit of a sheltering, nurturing place that can help them find the links. By pooling expertise in that way, you can help each other forge your way through a very difficult system. It's that kind of support network that can make all the difference. What are you looking at is edited and produced by Pip Stafford for Contemporary Art Tasmania. We'd like to thank Kylie Johnson and Mary Scott for their input, the Take Two speakers, and our interviewees, James, Pat, Rachel, Rosemary, Sean and Selena. The music is by Josh Santisperito. Contemporary Art Tasmania is a professional-level public presentation platform. 
To find out more about our programs, head to www.contemporaryarttasmania.org. What are you looking at can be found on our website as well as on iTunes and SoundCloud. 